Well, hello and welcome to Beat the Reset. My name is Tim and I am the guy in the hat. And today I wanted to talk to you about non-confiscatable currencies. Uh, That's right. Is there such a thing? Could it happen? Is it possible? Now, to see the answers to these sorts of questions, one only needs to look at, for example, the United States Constitution in 1789. And I've spoken about this on previous occasions. Now, at the beginning of that document, there are the three words, we the people. But curiously, when you scroll down to the Fifth Amendment, and you will see a small clause underneath the Fifth Amendment that is largely called eminent domain. Now, when you translate eminent domain, what it really translates to is supreme power. So at a time when the United States government was being established under George Washington, The United States government claimed that they were for the people, hence the term we the people at the commencement of the Constitution. But as you scroll down, you see the very, very nefarious confiscation clause uh, known as eminent domain. And uh, once again, this is quite a bit different and quite uh, far removed from 13 years earlier in 1776, when Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers, uh, of course, drafted the uh, and wrote the United States Declaration of Independence and freeing themselves from the crown. Uh, Very, very different wording in the United States Constitution. So something uh, obviously must have happened in that 13-year period. However, it's really the eminent domain clause that's of great interest for today's podcast because, of course, I'm talking about confiscations. And what we are looking for is evidence that uh, governments and central banks and treasuries and so on can actually perform a confiscation. And there is absolutely definite evidence. In fact, most Western constitutions have some sort of confiscation clause. For example, in Australia, we have something called compulsory acquisition in our constitution. In the United Kingdom, there is something that is known as expropriation, and so on and so forth. What this does is give governments the right to confiscate whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, provided that there are two things that are true. First of all, that they have a reason to do so, and secondly, that the incumbent is correctly and appropriately remunerated. What do I mean by both of those two things? Well, if we have a look back to the 1930s, you will see that in the United States, the government, when it confiscated gold under Executive Order 6102 in 1933 on April the 5th, did it have just cause? Well, one thing a government can do in the West to give itself just cause is to create something called a state of emergency. Now, when you have a state of emergency, the laws within that state of emergency overwrite any existing laws. In fact, legislation can be largely written on the fly. And this is exactly what happened under Franklin Roosevelt in 1933. He had come to office, closed down the banks, and then under Executive Order 6102, as per the Fifth Amendment of the United States Eminent Domain Clause, they, they being the government of the United States, enacted um, basically uh, confiscation, compulsory confiscation, thus uh, telling the common man that he needed to bring back his gold. Now, the common man had uh, little more to do than comply with it. However, there were, of course, many that didn't comply. And if you didn't comply with these kinds of confiscations, uh, especially in 1933, you would be charged with trading secrets of the Enemy Act of 1917, which is largely terrorism. So a lot of people were frightened and they brought their 
their gold back to the banking, the banks. So they also did exactly the same thing. The United States Treasury did exactly the same thing in the October of 1934, confiscating silver bullion. Not the coinage, though. The coinage didn't leave circulation until 1968. So the point I'm trying to make here is we are finding very, very clear evidence that governments uh, can and do confiscate. Um, and now, I mentioned correctly being remunerated. Well, the government uh, simply, in 1933, referred to the Gold Standard Act of 1900, which uh, had been written 33 years earlier, and the price of gold was set at $20.67 US. So, therefore, the only amount that the government need comp- uh, compensate the man in the street was that exact amount, $20.67. And, of course... Um, Regardless of what it was you were actually holding, that was all you would get. Unless, of course, you were holding something called numismatics. In other words, collectible fine art pieces. Now, the government realised very quickly that not all gold was created equal. Therefore, some was quite valuable. In fact, the pre-1933 eagles, francs, sovereigns and so on were largely considered to be numismatic. So, This meant that the government couldn't actually fulfil one of its obligations, and that is a fair and reasonable confiscation. It's not fair and reasonable to give people $20.67 for a fine collectible piece of art, which effectively is a collectible coin. So the government quickly moved to exempt uh, fine artworks and numismatic coins, which is still the case right up until this day. So first of all, I mean, one of the protections against confiscations was simply to hold these kinds of items. But it's not that easy to do in the modern world because, of course, they're quite expensive to purchase and, uh, and so on and so forth. However, if you were holding numismatics in the 1930s, you were not required to return them to the commercial bank because there was no way that uh, the consumer or the man in the street was going to accept $20.67 for a collectible fine art piece. However, uh, let's jump forward to the topic of today's conversation, and that is to do with confiscatable currencies. Now, after 1974, we see the emergence of uh, several international standard organisation, I guess, uh, decrees. And uh, these are white papers that outline what certain things will be uh, and uh, how global uh, unification will be formed by by such white papers. Uh, The International Standards Organization, or the International Organization for Standards, was formed in 1947 and sits underneath the banner of the United Nations. Surprise, surprise, the United Nations was formed two years earlier in 1945. It's interesting to me that uh, the International Organization for Standardization was one of the very, very early three-letter organizations that was set up for the purposes of unifying all uh, standards around the world, uh, largely so that the venture capitalists could come in ahead of time and be prepared to make absolute squillions out of the consumer market whenever those standards were enacted. However, let's get back to the facts. In 1974, we see the emergence of a couple of currency codes. Um, Now, first of all, the the first one uh, technically is not a currency code. It was ISO 3166. Now, this uh, particular ISO standard was to define what countries were uh, largely how to define countries. Let's just put it that way. So, for example, uh, the US would be classified under ISO 3166 by the two letters 
US. Uh, Australia would be classified as a U. The UK would be classified as UK. Japan would be classified as JP and so on. Now, this began the ISO standard for countries. So this meant that countries could be defined by a two-letter sequence, most of which were fed into the central bank system, probably in the RTGS system, which is the real-time gross settlements cross-border central bank system uh, set up in 1970. So this was for the purposes of when uh, settlements were being settled across central banks, they knew largely which country it was that, uh, of course, uh, was pr- uh, either doing the settling or the transacting or, the, or so on. However, um, the second part of the ISO standard that's really, really interesting is, uh, apart from the ISO 3166 country code, is something called ISO 4217, which appeared around about 1974, around about the same time, which is an interesting period because the United States left the gold standard in 1971. However, it was still illegal for the common man to trade gold right up until the 1st of the 1st, 1975, when Gerald Ford, uh, the then sitting president of the United States, took uh, uh, re, uh, re- relinquished or um, went back on the uh, the Gold Reserve Act of 1934 and enabled the common man once again uh, in an act of Congress to trade gold. Well, of course, the currency codes were all sitting there ready to go. Thank uh, thank goodness. And uh, what timing. And uh, so along comes ISO 4217 just, just a few months earlier before that decree was made. And we have now currency codes. Um, now, what you see is fairly, fairly simple. So if you have a look at, say, for example, the United States, they have the dollar. If you have a look at Australia, we've got the dollar. Uh, if you have a look at uh, the UK, they have the pound. If you have a look at Japan, they have the yen, uh, and so on and so forth. So what would happen is you would combine the country code, the ISO 3166 code, with the currency code ISO 4217. Let me give you an example. If we took Australia, the two-letter country code that's in the database is AU for Australia, and our currency is D for dollar. So uh, we go to Japan, it is JP for Japan, and Y is the yen. So you end up with something called JPY. And anybody that trades on foreign exchange markets and so on would uh, be very, very uh, aware of these kinds of codes. However, the one that's particularly of interest and that's the topic of today's conversation is the X class. Now, when you go through ISO 4217, there are many, many different types of currency codes and classes for all sorts of things. Um, For example, there is a triple X class. That's right. And that simply is a currency that can be traded or or a a trading mechanism where no currency is actually transacted at all. Um, It does beg the question when you start thinking about letters like triple X what else it actually relates to and why that is in fact the case. But that is written into ISO 4217. So let's have a quick look at ISO 4217 X-class currencies. X-class currencies are simply defined as currencies that are not sovereign to any nation. I will just say that one more time. X-class currencies are defined as not sovereign to any nation. So unlike the D dollar or the, uh, for example, the Y for yen, we have something that simply has the letter X in front of it. So if you have a look through ISO 4217, you'll notice that there is a bunch of currencies that actually have the letter X in front of them. Uh, The really obvious examples are obviously XAG and X 
XAU and XPT for platinum. So these are really the obvious ones. And what it means largely when you have a look at it is under the very, very um, decree of the United Nations effectively is that currencies that have X in front of them are non-confiscatable under sovereign constitutional um, uh, amendments and so on. So for example, the United States uh, could in fact confiscate gold bullion as they did in the 1930s. However, what they couldn't do is they couldn't confiscate something that had an X in front of it because that is not under their jurisdiction. It is not under their domain. In fact, there is no country that has X under its jurisdiction or domain because, as I said, they are a sovereign, which means they don't belong to any particular nation. Um, so this begs the question about why on earth would the United Nations have allowed such a currency class to, to be incepted? And I feel that this is simply a loophole uh, and a protection mechanism for anybody out there that's holding gold and silver, especially gold and silver that is stamped with the letters XAU. And people have said to me, well, does that mean that my uh, cast bars and my current minted bars uh, are not... Um, could they be confiscated? Well, the answer to that is that if there was a silver bullion confiscation, the answer is yes, there would be. Or a gold bullion confiscation, yes, they would be. it would be possible for them to be confiscated. But if you have XAU actually stamped into the product, the theory is that that creates intent, and that is the intention. So when the product was manufactured, uh, essentially it was stamped with XAU and XAG, um, meaning that it was deliberately designed to be a non-confiscatable currency item. Another example of that is if you took, say, for example, a 20-cent piece in Australia. Now, before a 20-cent piece is minted, it is largely something called a planchette. It's just, or a blank, as some people call it. Now, as a blank, you can't hand a blank to a to a, you know, a, a girl at Coles or Woolworths or one of these big box stores, you can't just hand a blank over because it needs to have a denomination. So even though it is 20 cents technically, and it, but it hasn't been minted with 20 cents on it. It's only once you mint it that it becomes relevant to ISO 4217, much the same as, as what I've been saying with the X class of currencies, it's once it has the stamp XAG on it, and once it has the stamp XAU on it, it's automatically understood under ISO 4217 that this is now a currency to be traded a sovereign, in other words, outside the jurisdiction of Western constitutions. Um, now, there are a number of products out there that are stamped XAG and XAU and so on and XPT. So these products are actually available. And whilst they are comparable in price to many, many other cast and minted bars, they do offer that extra level of protection. So if you're concerned about uh, government uh, expropriation, compulsory acquisition, eminent domain and so on, and confiscation, then my advice would be consider the extra level of protection of going for something that has an X-class currency. The other question I get asked a lot is, does this translate to cryptocurrencies? We've got XRP, XDC, XVG, XLM, and the answer is no. Cryptocurrencies and uh, ISO 4217 have absolutely nothing to do with each other at all. The X in front of a cryptocurrency is not the same thing as XAU and XAG. That is not the same. These cryptocurrencies are not listed in ISO 4217. So that's it for me. Of course, the guy in the hat, I thought I would jump in and give you a quick update on non-confiscatable currencies. I hope you've learned something today. And um, as I always say, uh, if you haven't got my two books, I have a book called Things We Were Never Told About Money. 
Uh, I also have my new book, The Great Asset Shift, which is talking about 250 years of uh, asset removal of your ancestors right up until basically now. And it goes all the way into the future to about 2033 and explains where we are headed with central bank digital currencies and so on and so forth. If you'd like to get a copy of those, they're available in the links below, or you can get them from my website, Beat the Reset. .com.au. That's beattheresetcomau That's it for me, the guy in the hat signing off on another podcast. Make sure you're looking after your health, your wealth, your families, your friends, your neighbours. And as always, make good choices. Good choices.